Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2012, photographer Matika Wilbur sold everything in her Seattle apartment and created Project 562, which reflects her commitment to visit with, engage with, and photograph all 562 plus Native American sovereign territories in the United States. And with this project, she's traveled hundreds of thousands of miles, many in her RV, which she's nicknamed the Big Girl, but also by horseback through the Grand Canyon, by train, plane, and boat, and on foot across all 50 states. The tagline for Project 562 is changing the way we see Native America. Wilbur says that with Project 562, she's seeking to overcome historical inaccuracies, stereotypical representations, silenced Native American voices in massive media. She says her work aims to humanize the otherwise vanishing race and to share stories that Native Americans would like told. Matika Wilbur uh, visited Utah State University, I believe it was in uh, 2017, and we talked to her in 2018. We'll revisit that conversation today. Sounds like quite the adventure. So tell me what initiated this. What's your goal? Well, Project 562 started, uh, the inception of it really came while I was teaching at a tribal school on my res. I used to teach photography, filmmaking, and music to several different at-risk tribal youth programs across the state of Washington. And while I was teaching, we were looking for formal curricula that we could use images and stories uh, to represent all of the different regions. And I remember sitting in class and looking out at my students and showing them TED Talks. And we were looking for Native people who had done TED Talks. And there weren't any at the time. That was like seven years ago, I think. And um, and so we, I ended up showing this them this film from this guy, Aaron Healy, who did a TED Talk about being out on Pine Ridge. And the kids were so disturbed and so distraught afterwards, you know, like the that sort of like that story that we hear so often about Indian country, about poverty and displacement and relocation and termination and genocide and all those stories. While they, we know they're important reflections, we also know that when we tell those stories to our kids, it has a sort of secondary trauma effect. And I watched my kids sort of go from feeling like, light and hopeful and excited to be in photo class to suddenly being like, oh, yeah, I bummed out, you know. And then I started following the research of Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, and she is this incredible woman. Actually, she's from Tulalip, the same tribe as me. And she did this study. She went around to all of these different tribal schools, and and she was really trying to understand if these mascots and these misrepresentations affect our youth. And so it's a long study, and I won't tell you all the particulars, but it concluded with realizing that uh, when Native students are shown representations that we stereotypically see in massive media, i.e. Chief Wahoo or Pocahontas or Dances with Wolves, their self-esteem goes down by 60%. And what's shocking is that the counterpart, um, you know, most non-Indians, of Caucasian descent, when they see images of a stereotypical image, Pocahontas, Chief Wahoo, etc., their self-esteem is raised. And so what that tells us is that we, are de- we desperately need in our communities positive representation, hopeful representation. We need our students to be able to see themselves differently. 
And so me and all the aunties were sitting around looking at this research and my fellow teachers going, yeah, somebody really needs to create a new anthology. We need textbooks and images of representing all of our people. And, um, <laughs> and the auntie said, you need to do that. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, me? You know, like, I just bought a Pottery Barn couch. <laughs> I, I have, like, a 401k and a boyfriend. Like, I can't move into a van. But um, we had ceremony, you know, and it became very clear to me that that this work needed to be done, and I was the person to do it. So, uh, so I thought, well, we'll do a Kickstarter, and if we raise any money, then then I'll quit my job. And I thought for sure there's no way anybody's going to donate to my Kickstarter. <laughs> and then people did. So all of a sudden, you know, I was packing my bags and hitting the road, and, and that's sort of how it how it happened. <laughs> you, you were kind of hoping you wouldn't raise money, I guess, would, <laughs> and then you wouldn't have to do it, right? Yeah. I guess I guess I was just sort of putting it out there into the into the universe yeah. <laughs> and saying, well, I'll let fate decide. <laughs> well, and fate did decide. Uh, you, you, I guess you got sufficient money to start it, um, and so you moved into that, uh, is an RV? It's a small space. Well, at the time, I actually just took my car. I had okay. a little Honda Coupe that I took on the road with me because I really just had enough money for gas and film for one year on the road. Mm. And so um, so I just relied so heavily on the kindness of others. You know, people mm. let me stay at their homes and fed me and sort of kept me going on this journey. And then eventually I did a second Kickstarter after I started running money after out of money on the on the first year, and um, then we raised two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and then I was able to buy what is became known as the Big Girl, which was a Volkswagen Rialta, <laughs> um, which are like the happiest little travel wagons. I would recommend them to anybody, mm. and um, and we traveled in that for the next two years. And then when we were leaving Standing Rock, we hit a deer in the middle of the night and totaled the Big Girl, and um, so now we have a, a full size. RV. So that's, wow, <laughs> that's wow. the story of the travel wagons. Yeah. There was a few others in, in between. We we tried. I tried to do a truck and trailer for a while and realized that I can't back those up that well. <laughs> so. Right. You, you need to know the limitations on your expertise, I guess. I, I, I too, share that. I, I, can't, I can't do that. Um, so Project 562, why 562? Well, when I started, there was 562 federally recognized tribes in the United States. And uh, I think we were sitting there writing the grant and the synopsis, and we go, what are we going to call this? We thought, should we just call it like Native America? Um, and then we thought, no, that's just not really a, an appropriate understanding of all of the unique and diverse cultural groups and tribal nations in this country. We have to be more specific. You know, like we don't want to support pan-Indian identity. And so we thought, well, we're going to be going to each one of the tribes, so let's figure out a way to call it that. And, and we sort of just picked it and went with it. It might have been a little nearsighted because now, you know, that number has changed. Of course, federal recognition is always changing in this country. Yeah, there's been times where all the tribes have been terminated. There's, you know, there was a time at the turn of the century when there was over 2,000 federally recognized tribes. So 
we know that that's contentious. It's also a really good talking point. And people have said, are you going to change the name to 567? Because that's how many federally recognized tribes there are now. And I guess that's still yet to be decided. Mm. <laughs> you said you didn't want to support pan, uh, pan-Indian. Um, how did you phrase that? Uh, I guess the you wanted to do specific tribes. And, and yeah, pan-Indian sp- identity. Yeah. Pan-Indian identity. There's this. Right. We have this sort of way of wanting to understand each other, I suppose. And so we we make create boxes. Uh, of course, those identities, uh, well, race, as we know, is a construct. And so when we continue to support that construct, I think it, that in itself is supporting racism and and we have a responsibility to learn more thoroughly and deeply about one another so we can get along better. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I feel uh, I feel strongly that that if we can teach, you know, all of the states in the United States and all of their capitals to our third graders, we can also teach the names of the tribes and at least the tribal groups in this country. Identities, uh, you know, is very very important. Um I wonder if you talk first about your sense of identity. How that maybe has that changed over time? Growing up, um, sure, did you yeah. grow up on reservations? Um, I grew up uh, in the Swinomish uh, tribe uh, with my mom and my dad. And my dad is actually from Tulalip, though. And so they're sister tribes. We share the same language and we have similar cultural and uh, religious beliefs, but. Um, they're also very different. <laughs> but, yeah, I grew up in Spanish. My family is a our commercial fisherman. My mom is sort of um, uh, like a – she's just such an amazing woman. She's She started off at, in her career teaching, and she mentor, her mentor was Fine Deloria, and she, she studied Native American studies. And then she went on to become a lobbyist and um, really worked to fight against public law 280 and then fought termination with my grandma and then became sort of a, a, an activist in her own right during the 60s and 70s. And, and they, you know, was active in taking over Alcatraz and Daybreak Star. And, you know, so my mom is one of these types of revolutionary women. And, and, um, and she came when she had her children, she came home and she uh, opened a Native American art gallery in our little town of Laconer. And she had a residency program, so a, a bunch of different artists would come and, and sell their artwork in our gallery. People like Marvin Oliver and Leon LaFortune and all of these incredible carvers and painters, and they would stay in the, uh, with us. And and those people really influenced me, I think. So I was very fortunate to have a group of artists uh, raise me, <laughs> really. And then we also, of course, did sustenance fishing and commercial fishing and we had a fireworks stand my mom was on the tribal senate my grandma my mom my dad so my entire life has always been very um very politically driven and culturally driven um but i think when i was a kid i really sort of rejected that identity because i was a very rebellious teenager uh and and i uh, decided that I didn't really want to have anything to do with the res. I, I think I bought into this notion, I, and, and I think I heard it a lot more when I was a younger kid. That people would say, "Oh, you got to get off the res, you got to get off the res," 
you know, as, as though the res was some terrible, awful place that needed escaping from like a prison or something. And, and so I, I went to college in Santa Barbara, I went to Brooks and, and I did, I really sort of studied what I would call Western ideology, this, this effort to become a, a part of the, the Western construct. And, and, um, and I found, didn't find very much of myself there. Mm. And so I eventually ended up coming back to, um, to working with my own people. That's and it. Photographing That's... my own people. <laughs> yeah, it's photography you went into. Yeah. Uh, you said something very interesting there. You, you didn't, you went to college, you didn't find much of yourself there. Mm-hmm. You, you, yeah, I was the, I was the only Indian at the school that I went to. I went to Brooks. And I would have these little one-woman protests outside the administration building <laughs> with one sign, like, I want more Native students, I want a Native professor. <laughs> mm. Because there, were, there weren't any, I was the only one. <laughs> mm. um, and, um, you know, what's interesting now is that so much of my work is about that. You know, since, since I've done these TED Talks, I got invited to speak at all of these universities. So we've been fortunate to share our message in, at places like Harvard and Columbia and, and Notre Dame and, you know, all the, the Ivies, but then also a bunch of small liberal, art, liberal arts schools. And, and, um, and I hear that over and over and over again from our Native students that they feel like they're not included. They feel like they don't belong. They feel like they don't have space in the university system. And I certainly felt that way. I... Um, I just felt like I was only learning to to do white things. You know, I, I wasn't learning. Nobody taught me how to be a documentary photographer in Indian country. Uh, nobody taught me proper protocol for um, for ways to approach very delicate cultural situations uh, with a lens. And uh, and so that was sort of things I had to fumble through and figure out on my own. But could can I imagine how much my career would have been different had I had the opportunity to be mentored by, by folks who had already walked that path before me. Do you, do you think that's changing? I guess people like you are potentially changing that. I think, I think in some places it is, we've seen incredible progression and in some places we haven't, um, you know, you wouldn't believe some of the stories that I've been told from students around the country. Um, in this last year, students have told me, um, you know, that they feel incredibly unsafe on campus. I, I remember when I was in Chicago giving a, a lecture, and this girl came up to me afterwards, and she told me the story of how her hijab was ripped off of her head, and and the the young man that did it said, uh, "Terrorists aren't welcome here." I was I recently got a, a note from a, a student um, in Central California at a very fancy university, who uh, said to me, who had this, um, so they had written all over his dorm room with a note that said, uh, like, prairie N-words aren't welcome here. Um, you know, so I know that there's a lot of contention and, and disruption happening in our in our students' lives. And so I think that that, in, when we look at the statistics, it's very clear, you know, like, only one and a hundred of our students will go on to college, and only, you know, only 20 of them will graduate. So it takes um, 7,000 ninth graders to create one native PhD. So we know that, that our students get to the university system, and the majority of them um, 
feel uncomfortable and feel the need to go home for whatever reason. And so I, I would like to say, yes, it's changing. We live in a post-racial construct. We, we, things are different, but, but that's, not, that's not the stories that I've been told. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're revisiting conversation from 2018 with uh, photographer Matika Wilbur and her very interesting uh, project, the 562 Project, uh, in which uh, she started in 2012. And uh, the commitment uh, was, is to visit, engage with, and photograph all 562 plus Native American sovereign territories in the United States. We'll have more with Matika Wilbur following this break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll experience the subtler, more acoustic side of Arabic music with ballads by Middle Eastern and North African singer-songwriters and small ensembles. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Acoustic Arabia, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Goldman Prize winner says protecting nature is worth the ultimate sacrifice. If no one is prepared to lay their life down to ensure that generation unborn will come and have a safe and healthy environment, what else are you prepared to give your life for? I'm Bobby Bascom, Goldman Prize winner Alfred Brownell. That's next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Tomorrow morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U-Time. Tom Williams, where we're visiting our conversation from 2018 with photographer Matika Wilbur. Her project, uh, 562, reflects her commitment to visit, engage with, and photograph all 562-plus Native American sovereign territories in the United States. The tagline for the project is Changing the Way We See Native America. And you can find uh, the project at project562.com. Her Website, Matika Wilbur's is matikawilbur.com, and she's involved in an ongoing podcast. It's called All My Relations. Uh, here's just a little of uh, the tagline here. All My Relations is a podcast hosted uh, by Matika Wilbur and Adrian Keene to explore our relationships, relationships to the land, our creature relationships, and to one another. Each episode invites guests to delve into a different topic facing Native American peoples today. Um, so that's... Uh, all My Relations uh, podcast. Here's more of my conversation from 2018 with Matika Wilbur. This might be a good time to bring in, um, there's a story, I think this is on your website, it really struck me. This is uh, Hannah Tomeo, a young woman. Mm-hmm. Let me just read a little bit. Uh, she says, running has been my absolute passion and my stability. When I transferred schools, I felt as if no one wanted me to succeed. My teacher told me, It was in my genetics to be an alcoholic. My basketball coach would drug test only me on the team. My track coach told me I would just be another stupid Indian runner with no chance in the real running world. I let those words motivate and push me until I earned the fastest times in school, but she still wouldn't let me race. And she goes on to talk about her her experience. I wonder if you could uh, tell me a little bit about this. It sounds like an extraordinary young woman. Right. Hannah Tamayo, we photographed her... Uh, last year, when she's actually Mrs. Colville, so she's um, royalty from her community. And, you know, the what's amazing about that story is that is when her dad says to her, 
you know, you can either be a quitter or you can come back a success story. You know, it's your choice. And so she went on that summer to train harder than she ever had before. And the next following year, she made it to state. And then she first placed at the Boise and um, at the Boise meet and at the a Nike meet. And then she became Mead High School's number one runner. And from there, she went on to be recruited by over 20 universities, and now she's in college running running uh, for a school. I think she's at Oregon State. I can't remember exactly. But, um, you know, what's amazing about that story is that she had the will within her to go on and to become an amazing success story. And so, you know, it, what's interesting to me is that we have these young teenagers who have stories like this to tell, um, and it, actually, when I, when I was in Utah, you can look at this video of these boys um, when I was at the Ute Bear Dance, and I, was, and I had asked, I was doing, a, I'm actually still in for the last four years, we've been coming to go to the Bear Dances in and, and Ute Mountain Ute and Southern Ute, and, and we've been filming, and we're working on a longer documentary about that piece. But while we were there, we asked these young teenage teenagers if we could film them talking about the bear dance. And so they, you know, they sort of just said, no, we don't really want to. They're like, no, we don't want to be on camera. We're okay. And then uh, about 10 minutes later, they came running back over. And they said, we do have some things we want to talk about, though. Will you, will you film us and put it on the Internet? <laughs> and I said, sure. <laughs> and so they sort of huddled up and had a little discussion amongst themselves and and they elected this one young man to speak for them, and they all stood behind him. He said, last week we were talking about, we wanted to talk about the, our bear dance in school, and um, the principal said that, it, that, that we don't do that in these schools. And we got in trouble for singing our bear dance songs in class. And when we, when we brought it to our parents, our parents went to talk to the, the principal, and the principal said there would be no discussion about it. And he said, you know, we we are not allowed to be Indians in, in this school. And we want the world to know that. Mm. And it was a, a very heartbreaking story. And um and so we you know, we broadcast we put that up on our on on YouTube and on our Facebook page and I think some some discussion did follow it and that little film ended up going to the, an Indian film festival in San Francisco, and then those students were able to go out to San Francisco and talk about their story, and and they received a lot of support from the larger Native community, and so I think that that is a really uh, common story that we hear amongst our young people going through the public school system. That's still happening. That's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder. Uh, t- tell me a little bit more about your travels to to Utah. You've been, I think, to all fifty states, right? You've uh, you you've been on the road a long time with this project. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your uh, your travels in in Utah. Oh my God, I had the best time in Utah. First of all, I should say like, I really love Utah. <laughs> I was so shocked. Uh, I don't know what I thought. I I wasn't prepared. You know, like going to Canyonlands and Moab and and Zion and, you know, traveling all over, going out to go shoot country and Ute country. I mean, I was just, I was welcomed with, with open arms and I felt like people were so kind. I think um, in all of my travels, the, the kindest people, and like strangers, you know, is probably in Utah 
in Minnesota and in Alaska, <laughs> all of the places that, like, for me, I was not the most excited to go to. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, I'm a real West Coast gal. Like, I like to be by the ocean. So I was, <laughs> I was so surprised. And, you know, I got to photograph. I'll never forget when I went to um, Goshu and Shoshone, and I got to photograph this man named Rupert Steele. And, you know, I grew up my whole life. Um, my people are mask dancers. My people are the people of the tide. And we don't have, like, you know, a, a headdress like people have um, in the pictures, you know. Uh, we have our, our headdresses are very different. They're made of cedar. And so I got to meet this man who's a hereditary chief and and he said, I'd like to wear my headdress for this photo shoot. It was the first time I'd actually ever met anybody who, who owned one or who wanted to wear one. And and so I asked him if he could, um, you know, kind of explain it to me, the significance. And and he talked about, um, he took me up to the, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll explain it to you when we get out in the land. And, and he took me way up to this to this river, to the headwater of this river. And, and, um, and he said, he showed me how you take care of this headdress how you wash the feathers and he said you know i asked the water to help to take care of us and our food and our medicine around us and to take care of the red road for us the road we walk on i ask it to take care of our bodies and get rid of all the bad things we put into our system and clear out our mind and i pray for all of that for all of us in a good way and so when i wear this i send that out to all of the people here on mother earth so that we can be happy and so that we can be well and so i pray for the water to do that for us today and, you know, it's in that way that he takes care of that headdress and says the prayers for all the people and all the people that come around him. And I thought, wow, that's so beautiful. I never had, I, you know, because I didn't grow up with that intimately a part of my culture, I didn't ever had that sort of reverence and respect for, um, for that sort of sacred cultural item and what it means to, to be a person that takes care of those things. And, and I remember going, you know, going out there and really feeling that respect while I was, you know, we were, while I was in that place. And so I'll, I'll always feel really connected in that way. Hmm. Uh, in one of your TED Talks, uh, you, you, uh, you said a phrase that really struck me. You, you talked about how you have degrees, multiple degrees. You've lived in that world and, of course, been immersed in uh, the world of your, you know, native Native tribe, um, you say degree is one thing, wisdom is another, and you, you know, the wisdom is greater. <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> I think you, I think you said that. Yes, and it was inter- <laughs> interesting to me. You, you, you know, you sort of practice what you preached. Um, you, you ended that TED talk with with a prayer. You said, "I'd like to, like, I'd like to do a prayer." You know, in the in the style of my my ancestors, and then you've. That's that's how you ended the TED talk. I want to even talk a little bit about that. Do you know this? You, you you straddle two worlds. You kind of have a dual identity. Is and uh, but but you're I guess you're wanting to uh, have have at least your your people and I guess all people um, value more the the wisdom that's uh, that's inherent in, in in your people. Um. <laughs> Well, you know, um, one time I heard this lady, her name is Jessica Metcalf, Dr. Jessica Metcalf. In fact, she's Turtle Mountain Chippewa, and she she runs an an amazing online boutique called Beyond Buckskin. Um, 
which is so cool for Native people to be able to sell their things on there and for us to be able to, like, to, you know, support inspired Natives, not Native-inspired. I think it's really important. But uh, anyway, when I was interviewing Dr. Jessica Metcalf and, and, and a number of others who I've interviewed, I asked them what does it mean, This sort of the same question, what does it mean to be a Native person in 2018? I think it's a question that a lot of us ask ourselves, trying to understand really how to... Um, how to really carry out the work of our ancestors and 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 exist in a world that is is very opposite the way our ancestors might have us interact with the world around us at least have us um, honor those original agreements that we have with the sky people and the tree people and the sea people it's it you know in modern infrastructure it's very challenging to to maintain those agreements uh, but you know I when I asked Jessica that question, she said, you know, um, we're told often that we should learn how to live in two worlds. And that's not how we understand it up north. You know, we, we are who we are wherever we walk, and we carry all of that with us wherever we go. So when we walk into an academic situation or when we testify before Congress or when we walk into the grocery store, we don't leave our Indianness at the door. We don't strip away our belief systems so that we can engage in a Western world. You know, we we are who we are. And so if the world is not supporting and is not a place where I can wear my moccasins or where I can sing my songs or where I can speak my language, then the world around me also has to shift. And so... This concept of of um, having a cultural duality is is um, it's complex, but I also realize that that the world around us has a responsibility to acknowledge its own indigenous intelligence and to begin integrating that into its curricula and its place-based understanding and the way that we're interacting with one another. I keep having this recurring dream, and I'm on a train in Seattle and um, you know that's I'm drinking like the best cup of coffee (laughs) and that's how you know it's like that's how I know I'm dreaming because the trains suck in Seattle and and I'm always missing Seattle coffee because our coffee really is better (laughs) but um, you know I I look over to my left and there's these white people and they're speaking uh, Dene and I'm so shocked I'm like what are they doing they're all talking Hajona Hashli Hajona Hashli and I'm so surprised. And I look over in front of me, there's these black people, and they're speaking Anishinaabe, and they're feeding their kids wild rice and buffalo and mixed berries the way you only get when you're up in Anishinaabe territory. And, and you know, they're all Gijimana, talking about Gijimanadu and Miigwech. And, and I look over to my right, and there's these, there's these Asian people, and they're speaking my language. They're speaking Lushootseed, and they're feeding their kids dried salmon. And I realize I'm dreaming about a modern world that didn't erase its indigenous intelligence, that didn't aim to eradicate all of Native American identity, culture, and existence, but instead embraced it and began integrating it into the modern world. And how beautiful and profound that could be if we actually began practicing those principles. So there are ways for us to indigenize our spaces and begin acknowledging our own indigenous intelligence in places like New Zealand and Australia, uh, you know, there's always acknowledgement of country 
before any formal address. In this country, we do the Pledge of Allegiance. In this country, uh, we take a knee, we, we, we play the national anthem. Um, you know, but uh, there's also an opportunity in that moment to acknowledge the indigenous land and the indigenous that, you know, territory that we're occupying. And I think that that could be one drastic shift is for us to also acknowledge that everywhere we walk, in North America, on Turtle Island, albeit city streets or suburban cul-de-sacs, is Indian land. And it, there's a tenacious and disruptive colonial history in all of the places that we are, especially in Utah, since we're talking to an audience in Utah. Some of the largest massacres that have ever happened on American soil happened in Utah. And so if we are to actually get to a more progressive place, we have a responsibility to acknowledge that that history all the time. You know, mm-hmm. so in the morning when we say the Pledge of Allegiance, we can also do a Thanksgiving address. And how, what, how might that shift the experience for our young people moving forward? And you're you're talking about alternate history, what might have been, but you're also, of course, talking about a dream of of of, of a better future. Um, what's the starting point? Do you think you've talked about a few things? I guess what what's the what would be number one on your list if you could uh, if you were, I guess, ruling the world and could, could make these things happen. <laughs> oh my God, I wouldn't want that job. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, um, well, I, you know, it, it, it's different in each space. So if we're talking about in our educational spaces, I would think it would be really beautiful for us to inc- incorporate Indigenous intelligence into, into STEM, into our, in, in our literature, you know, in, in every aspect of, of our curricula. There's an opportunity for us to, to learn from the Indigenous folks that came before us. And that that knowledge is not um, like the wisdom that's inherent in us, as though like we're the sacred the sacred mother or the you know like this the the whispering all knowing omnipresent you know native person that's sort of been um, stereotyped and ingrained in Western culture that native people have this this like um, you know like spiritual nature just by by way of being born brown but. <laughs> But, you know, it's that there's intelligence and knowledge systems and structures, plant systems um, that are have been taught to us by our elders that come before us. And those teachings are valuable and deserve to be a part of the Western curricula and be valued in that. In government, I, I would love to see a space held specifically for Native people in Congress, in the House, and, you know, at least in our own local governments, on our school boards, and, and on our county, in our county systems, we we should have and aim to elect Native people that can help to sort of bring some balance to the decisions that we're making for others. You know, all of if all of our positions of power are held by by white folks, um, and they're making decisions for all the brown folks, and how do the brown folks feel represented? You know, in the decisions that are being made for them, and so decolonization as a construct, or uh, it has to do with the sharing of power. And so I believe that when we share power in our spaces and create space for others, amazing things can happen. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're revisiting our conversation from 2018 with photographer Matika Wilbur. Uh, her project 562 is a project in which she visited, engaged with, and photographed all 562-plus Native American sovereign territories in the United States. We'll have more following this break. Support for Project Resilience programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. On the next Radio Lab, one of the most dangerous ideas of the 20th century. Sterilization for the best interest of society. Join us for the final episode of our four-part series on the concept of intelligence on the next Radio Lab. Coming up this morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. In 2012, photographer Matika Wilbur sold everything in her Seattle apartment and created Project 562 which reflects her commitment to visit, engage with, and photograph all 562-plus Native American sovereign territories in the United States. The tagline for the project is Changing the Way We See Native America. And you can find out more at project562.com. Her website is matikawilber.com, and Matika Wilbur is co-host of the podcast All My Relations. Uh, We talked with Matika Wilbur in 2018. You're, of course, this project, you're, you're collecting images, right? You're collecting stories, um, Project 562. Um, maybe I could uh, phrase this next question this way. At the beginning of uh, one of your TED Talks that I was uh, looking at, you have an image of a young Native American girl, and she's got her iPhone, and she's watching some images, which I guess you would consider destructive, uh, she's seeing the Disney's Pocahontas, and uh, there's there's uh, you know the the Redskins logo and uh, the, the stereotypical Western uh, representation of, of Western movie representation of an Indian, and then you talk about the the project. What you're trying to do is um, document uh, the, the way things really are, right? Changing the way we see Native America is the kind of the tagline for the project. So I'm wondering, it's obviously adding positive images, adding the images of the way things really are. Does this include or should it include counteracting, removing those negative images as well? Yeah, well, I feel like there's been a little progress, you know, like with, um, with um, you know, what happened recently with the little red sambo of baseball finally being put to rest. <laughs> yeah, the Cleveland Indians, a, yeah. You know, it's a small victory yeah. in our efforts, that are, but, you know, our, our hearts feel strong for that. <laughs> you know, there's these sort of narrative abolitionists all amongst us who are, are aiming to sort of free the way that we see one another. And, and so I feel like there has been some shift. You know, Dan Snyder obviously needs to change the name the Washington Redskins is a very derogatory way of understanding a, and representing a people. And so, you know, that we have a long way to go. Uh, you know, there's uh, very few film, films, you know, that, that represent Native people. I just went to see Black Panther the other night. So, so cool. And I thought when I left, I couldn't help but think to myself, you know, could you imagine if there, if there was a Native superhero movie, a Marvel film, how cool would that be? You know, but recently um, 
Taika Waititi. Uh, he directed Thor, and so that sort of that, that gave me incredible like feelings of pride and joy that we, there was an indigenous person who was directing these sort of major films and, and brought characters into that film that were just very normal, um, you know, a part of the scene characters. And so I think when, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of off track now, but <laughs> yeah, I, I really do hope for it. But by the way, that the, shift in that area, that edition of Thor was, I think very, got critical raves. So it was very successful film directed by mm-hmm. um, um, the additions. I'm forgetting his name again from New Zealand. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk a bit about you. You have a funny blog post. It's kind of funny, but it's serious as well on uh, project 562.com, the blog. Uh, you talk about Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. I want to just read a couple of lines here. Each year that Thanksgiving claims Turtle Island, our people are forced to reflect upon its meaning, relevance, and social danger. Don't get me wrong, you go on to say, even though I'm an indigenous woman, I love to eat 5,000-calorie meals and watch football with my cousins. I'm of the exennial generation, raised amidst mainstream culture, so naturally waking up early on Thursday morning, watching Macy's Day Parade while gobbling Mom's famous ooey-gooey cinnamon rolls is a small slice of paradise, but there seems to be some trouble in paradise. Amidst the storm of sautéing, roasting, and baking, my attuned critical mind and Facebook feed is overwhelmed with self-condemnation. So do tell. By the way, very, very well done. So you're immersing yourself in sort of, <laughs> sort of the. <laughs> you like that first line? <laughs> that was really stretching it with that really long sentence. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, two yeah. paragraphs actually. But uh, I wanted the people to get the flavor of it. Um, so you're 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 torn, right? Um. Well, I, I yeah, I wouldn't say like I, I feel like emotionally torn you know it's just like another day we you know we all go through it and we, we maybe we went through it yesterday you know it's president's day yesterday how many people support donald trump are they torn do they wake up in the morning like oh can't celebrate don't want to have the day off gonna protest you know or do you just sort of <laughs> do you sort of like go oh yeah it's another american holiday you know um but yeah, I mean, Thanksgiving is always a little complicated for me. We know that the original Thanksgiving between Indians and pilgrims is a part of our imagined story, our historical amnesia, this sort of American falsehood that we perpetuated that somehow becomes a legend and then it eventually becomes a tradition. And so, um, and, and, in this story, I talk about how I actually went back to Haudenosaunee country in New York, and I had the opportunity um, on the week before Thanksgiving to celebrate a real Thanksgiving with them. And so there's actually a, a, a Thanksgiving um, is like the, the thanks that we give to all of the living things and the way that we honor that, and it's called Ganawanhio uh, um, uh, or I don't. I don't really know how to say to say it in their language, but it's the words that come before all else, or the greetings to the natural world, and, and an opening and address. And it's something that's done at every gathering in Haudenosaunee country. Every single, you know, like at the beginning of school, at every ceremony, it's a a way of greeting and giving thanks to the to the natural world around them. So you could actually go on my blog and listen to that and see that that Thanksgiving address if you'd like. But, you know, like that idea, that concept 
was is still very alive and real in Wampanoag communities and Haudenosaunee communities and, and, and all up and down Turtle Island. And so the way that Thanksgiving became misappropriated um, is really interesting to me. You know, like there may or may not have been um, this, you know, what happened, the way that we tell the story of like the Indians um, bringing food to the pilgrims and the pilgrims rejoicing and there was a turkey and everybody decided to get along. That, you know, like that never happened. <laughs> so um, the one account that people talk about that may have been what is considered the original Thanksgiving is when um, when the Wampanoag people um, finally reached a peace treaty with the original settlers in Massachusetts and um and then those settlers, I guess, were drinking and got kind of drunk and shot their guns off. And so Mama Soa and his men came over and they said, um, you know, we have a peace agreement. You're not supposed to have any guns. We're supposed to lay our weapons to rest. And, and, and the drunk men said, uh, yeah, we're, we're very sorry. Let's eat something instead. <laughs> and so I guess there was some food that people had. Um, and that was what they say may or may not be the original Thanksgiving. That's the story, that, as I'm told, from Wampanoag people, from the historians in Wampanoag country. So, um, you know, the, the danger in, that I that I talk about when we reiterate that story and when we tell that story all over again is is we sort of like sweep under the carpet this this very real, um, very destructive, very violent history that we have and uh, that brought us here to this place that we're at today. And when we don't recognize that violence, then we might begin to believe that the world that we live in is fair, that there is no such thing as uh, oppression or systemic racism or uh, that the ways that our, our culture became formed um, favored one and disadvantaged another. And so we begin to believe things like the bootstrap mentality, like, well, if you would just work harder, you too could have the opportunity to go on to college and become the next CEO of the next tech startup and and be a, a multimillionaire. You just need to work harder. When in fact, we know that when certain communities were oppressed in a very real way through um, lack of ability to own land or the, the disadvantage and, and the opportunity to education or, you know, like on and on and on, that those, those systems created for us um, the realities that we live in today. And so the falsehood of, of these, you know, these historical stories lend into the way that we interact with one another still. And that's why I think it's important that we tell that story appropriately. We just have about five minutes left in the conversation. I want to uh, make sure we tell some more stories, um, people that have stood out to you in your travels. Uh, one, I'll start with one that stood out to me, that her story, uh, Sinead Talley. Um, and she, mm-hmm. I'll just, and this time I'll just read one sentence. Uh, it's taken a long time for me to get outside of the blood quantum construct of thinking, she says. What she's talking about there. Sinead uh, Talley's a woman, she's from Iraq, and... One of the exhibitions that we're doing coming up this year is on blood quantum. Last year, we did a, a show called Natural Wonderment, Stewardship, Sovereignty, and Sacredness, and we did a show highlighting Native women. And, and this year, we're doing a show on two-spirit identity and blood quantum. And blood quantum is a, a very complicated um, very complicated history and has a very real way of affecting our lives. 
today, you know, like Native people are the only people who have to prove their pedigree. And so, like champion dogs, Native people are still having to to prove their lineage in some way or another. And that blood quantum, whether it is established by the tribal community, and whether it be a quarter or half or three quarter, it's 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 one of the most um, disintegrating and uh, ways that we're identifying as as indigenous people. It becomes a, a way for us to other and and a way for us to say you're not enough, you're not Indian enough, you don't belong, you're not allowed, you're not a citizen, and um, and it impacts you know the way that we love and who we choose as a partner and and it affects our ability to um, to continue to exist as a nation. One of my friends, Desi Small Rodriguez, she's has done her her dissertation and her research on blood quantum and, and its effect on our nations. And, and, you know, it's estimated like 150 years from now with our policies, the way that they currently are, our nations will no longer exist. So we have this, we have this, um, this need in Indian country for us to reevaluate our relationship to blood quantum. Uh, anyone else who, who's, you know, a lot of travels here, all 50 states. Um, is there... So uh, one or two people who've especially stood out to you over all those travels. You know, I've loved recently. I've been photographing seed keepers, indigenous seed keepers around the country, um, and so there's a strong resurgence in our communities to reconnect to our um, to, to rematriate of sorts. We have these women who are, have been carrying seeds that are pre-colonial seeds and planting them. And, and we've seen this incredible resurgence of connection to ancestral teachings by, by connecting, reconnecting to the, the plants that originally gave us those teachings. And so I've loved photographing people like um, Dr. Elizabeth Hoover. Uh, she's a teacher at Brown. She's a professor at Brown. And she recently wrote a book called The River is in Us. And she talks about how powerful it is when clan mothers take back research in their own communities. I got to spend time with a woman named Rowan White who has been, um, you know, replanting the revolution, <laughs> as she says, um, and seeding the next generation with pre-colonial seeds and teaching and empowering communities to, to become food sovereign. And uh, I've loved those experiences. I, I just yesterday, uh, we got to photograph um, a dance group here in Alaska, and um, there, uh, and we got to photograph these Inuit ladies who have been taking back their traditional tattooing. And uh, traditionally, the ladies would tattoo their faces with their clans and for beauty and for all sorts of different reasons. And so it was so powerful to get to photograph those women and, and hear their stories and. and so it's you know I mean there's I could go on and on and on but um, it's just a it's a real blessing to get to do this work and and I'm grateful for the opportunity opportunity to do it and and I hope that those who um, are listening have the opportunity to check it out. What's next, Project uh, Five Sixty Two, or in in general for uh, Matik Wilbur? <laughs> well, uh, Dom, <laughs> I um. What's next? Well, we're working on a curricula right now. Uh, we're really excited about hopefully 
getting to a place in the next two years where we'll be able to share that curricula. And we're building a nomadic museum that will be in the structure of a traditional longhouse. And we'd like to take that longhouse and travel it around the United States and and have the opportunity to bring that to some rural communities and larger cities and, and showcase this final exhibition. Uh, next year in August of 2019, we'll be unveiling the final collection, of, you know, the full collection of all of these images at the Tacoma Art Museum. And then, of course, the publications will be releasing. And in the meantime, we'll just keep blogging away over here. <laughs> and the blog is project562.com. Uh, you can find Matika Wilbur at uh, matikawilbur.com. By the way, are you still receiving money on your Kickstarter? Is that done, or do you still receiving donations for the project? Yes, of course. We're always fundraising. <laughs> so we, uh, you can people donate uh, directly on our blog. Our Kickstarters are no longer available to receive funds, but you can um, you can always donate on the blog. Okay, and that blog is project562.com, as I mentioned, matigawilber.com. Well, it's a fascinating project. Uh, good luck with everything, and thanks so much for the conversation. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Our thanks to Matika Wilbur, and uh, one other uh, place to plug, Matika Wilbur is co-host of a podcast that's called All My Relations. And uh, as we mentioned, uh, MatikaWilbur.com and Project562.com are places to go to find out more about Project 562. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Extension. Supporting local producers by buying food strengthens the economy, creates jobs, and increases food security. Visit utahzone.org. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanity and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.